Today is April 9th, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 85. Today on the Human Factors Cast, we're talking about DARPA's prosthetic memory stuff, MIT's subvocalization device, and Project Zanzibar, whatever that is. It's pretty mysterious. Is that an AI politely interrupting me? Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Oh, what's up, everybody? Nick, how are you doing today on this lovely Monday? You know what? I'm just happy to have made it another week through this thing we call life. Uh, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. That sounded really bleak and dark, but no, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy that we're here talking about human factors. Uh, but before we begin, I just have to jump in really quick uh, and, and talk about something that our listeners will hear tomorrow. Now, as you know, we've done this Patreon refresh, and as part of that, we are doing sort of this bonus podcast uh format it's called human factors cast infinite and what we're doing as kind of like a treat to you guys um is we're releasing the first episode for free to all of our listeners in your normal feed so you'll get that tomorrow um but going forward only our patreon subs at the human factors engineer level will get this but we just wanted to kind of let you guys know what kind of content you would be getting if you helped us out on patreon and supported us and speaking of that big thank you to brian for being a human factors engineer supporter on patreon so this episode is brought to you by brian for helping us out okay blake let's get into the banter what's going on with you oh man okay so nick my entire life, not really my entire life, but for a very long time, I've always wanted to get like a drum machine touchpad. So for anybody that doesn't know what this is, it's basically just a, think of a square with a bunch of little square buttons that you could tap and attach sounds to, right? And you can just make beats, that kind of stuff, make different, uh, you know, drum tracks, that, that kind of fun gear. And, but they're really expensive, especially like some of the nicer ones made by Native Instruments or any of those bigger companies. But I found out over the weekend that they actually actually native instruments themselves actually has an app that's free for iPhones. I'm not sure if it's on Android or not, but it's basically a drum machine with a loop station inside of a phone app that you can like download. You can actually plug in your own kind of loops or drum sounds that you want to put into it in the machine and then record it and upload it to the cloud. And I just got to say that for something so powerful that's only on a mobile phone, this thing is really well designed like I was, I was expecting like a lot of you know mu- musical software like Pro Tools and FL Studio. Like they're they're very clunky and kind of complicated. It's like the first time. It's the only analogy I can really I always make is that it's like jumping into Photoshop the first time and not knowing really what to do or how to get started. It's like that times five sometimes. But this is a really user friendly thing for like a local phone app. And I don't know, I had a lot of fun making beats over the weekend. Oh, sweet. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, so I just checked. It's not on Android, uh, but I'm curious. What like so? What kind of makes this better for you? Is it for me? It would be the multi-touch aspect of it. You know how like there's some input lag with um, some of these applications where it doesn't register both positions of your fingers, and it 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 just feels kind of clunky in that regard. Like I would I would want to hit be able to hit two of these things simultaneously, and and have it register that. Well, see, that's the kind of thing that blew me away, right? Because I expected, or I had a really low expectations coming to it, because I played with physical drum pads that are very sensitive, so you can like do rolls on a single, single like little pad or little square. But and I was like, ah, I won't be able to pull most of that off. I have to just edit a lot of it in the background if I want to do anything really fast or complicated. Uh, hitting multiple pads at once or hitting the same pad really fast. And actually, believe it or not, like the just from my iPhone's haptic sensors, it's able to really pick it up very, very well. And I don't know if that's because of their engineering teams understanding like what people really want in the more physical product space from stuff like native from companies like Native Instruments who've been making this stuff for a long time and have worked really hard, obviously over at least one iteration to build a product that was as similar as you can get to a full drum pad. Um, but the biggest thing for me was that I could pop in and download a lot of either you can, you can do paid 
like loops and drum sounds and stuff like that. But you can also like make your own and pull them in from your your own libraries from Pro Tools or FL Studio and stuff like that. And I thought that was just awesome. So that was those were the two big things, like being able to make really intricate beats and it follow my you know tapping patterns, um, and then being able to pull in my own content. Uh, and the, really, the only design downside is basically because you're limited to the phone screen, right? But even the layout, it kind of facilitates like even a, I think it's, I think it's like a four by four little drum pad area. So it, it, it's pretty great, especially if you're like on the go, uh, like flying or something like that, or just hanging out. Yeah. I mean, I guess for flying, it'd be really good because you can't bring a drum pad with you drum set. And, uh, you know, or if you did, uh, that'd be more annoying than the crying baby, I would think. <laughs> oh yeah, it would, it would certainly be like a lot louder, and people people do look at you like you're nuts though, because I did it on the way back from Boston. I was just making beats or whatever. People were like, "Why is he just furiously furiously tapping on his phone? I <laughs> is don't he playing Candy what Crush? Doing <laughs> playing Candy Crush over there, uh, really aggressively." <laughs> yes. Oh god. But Nick, what's been going on going on with you, man? Okay, so last week I was hoping to have rep- be able to report on MoviePass and I kind of went over sort of what it is and and how to uh, the usability of it and I so over the weekend I had the opportunity to go see two movies, one of which we'll be talking about on tomorrow's show, so look forward to that. Um but uh one of the things so I I got to see these two movies and uh, I think last week I sounded a little critical of of sort of the usability aspect of this thing, and I gotta say it's uh it's it's pretty easy to use. Like it's less fussy than I thought it would be. Like I I was assuming that um, because of the you have to be within 100 feet of the theater uh, component of it, as well as you know uh, actually using the card to pay. I just there were so many points of failure that I was like. There's no way that this is going to go off without a hitch the first time I do this. But sure enough, we opened the app. We did a quiet place for opening night. And, um, Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, did you see that, by the way? No, I, I have to okay. wait till scary movies come out or I have to go see it by myself because at least won't go see scary movies. Okay. Well, well, we'll talk about it tomorrow because I, I got, I got a lot of stuff to talk about with that. But, um, but yeah, so, so we did that and, uh, to avoid, I don't know what it is about movie pass, but it's the same kind of thing where like, if you bring your own cup into a restaurant and sort of the social normative messaging around filling up your cup with uh, water from their machine. Like, I don't know. It's, it's the same kind of feeling I get. It's icky, right? Where I don't want to go up to a, a, a movie theater uh, kiosk or, or, or one of the, one of the cashiers behind the register and, and present my movie pass card because I almost feel like it's like, yeah, I'm not really giving you money. Like I'm doing it through this service. Like, I don't know how to describe it. So we did these uh, like self paid kiosks, uh, and that was super easy for us. So it was, it was just, a, it was very easy in every single aspect. And I was expecting something to go wrong at any one of these points. And, um, uh, we did it again for ready player one on uh Saturday and it was the same thing. It went off without a hitch. Um, and I was half expecting because, I'm uh, out of data this month uh, on my mobile. So I was turning off my mobile um, and I was half expecting since MoviePass uses your data and we talked about that scandal last week that they would sort of, uh, you know, lock my account or something because I didn't have connection to the internet. Um, but no, it was it was fine. I just had to connect it to, to get my ticket and that was it. And I am kind of blown away with how easy it all was. Yeah, I'm kind of glad it went so well, too, because when you were talking about it with the price and everything, I mean, it just sounds like an unbeatable deal. But you did when you were telling us all about it last week, I was a little worried about how that would go process wise. But it sounds like from what you're saying, because you you said you actually used the in theater kiosk to kind of like check out and all that kind of stuff and get your tickets. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if all these movie theaters have to opt in to allow the service, right? Because if it's if it's integrated into something like that that's electronic versus just like going up to a cashier and saying like, "Here's my card." Uh, I, I wonder if that's just like something all movie th- or movie theaters within that radius or your radius have opted into versus it being like, you know, kind of that weird stigma that you were feeling of taking the water bottle into the restaurant. Yeah, so I will say that there are a couple AMC theaters that have banned MoviePass, 
um, because of this very reason. Like they're they're losing money on it, and so uh, I I would assume Movie Pass is made aware of these, and they just don't have those. Um, they don't have those movie theaters in their app. Uh, I can check. There's one in Mission Valley that actually doesn't allow it. So, you know, like I, it's just one of those things that if it's done right, it shouldn't show up in the app and you shouldn't be able to even get to that place. But if you're, if you don't know that and you go to the movie theater, you go to the AMC without even thinking about it and you know, it, it doesn't show up, then you'll have to pay out of pocket. So it's, it's a little, you know, less than optimal in that regard. But uh, for the most part, it was, it was a pretty, pretty shockingly easy experience. So nice, man. Well, I'm glad it all worked out. That's so sick. I'm totally going to try it now. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. We can go see some movies together. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I have ready player one on here, but you know, we might talk about that tomorrow instead. I just, it, it it's a movie. It's, it's uh, a virtual reality and, <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll have my full thoughts on that tomorrow. Anyway, I just want to uh, I want to get into some stuff before we get into the news here. Right? Like I said, the Patreon refresh. Go check that out if that's something you feel like you can support. We would greatly appreciate that. Any little bit helps. Um, you know, like like I was saying earlier, we are trying out this uh, Human Factors Cast Infinite. Now, uh, I, I think I described it earlier, but just in case I didn't, covering my basis here, it's a weekly podcast where we, Blake and I, talk about human factors, etc. This is a plethora of topics, right? So this could be anything from like spoiler casts, from whatever your favorite media is, or what our favorite media is, I guess, experimental human factors content, which we're really excited, right? So things like human factors history, um, human factors research highlights, you know, there's just experimental things and so your pledge kind of helps us experiment with content and uh, we want to benefit the people who are helping us so we're hoping that these will be uh, beneficial to you and and if that interests you uh, we we encourage you to go check us out and and consider giving a pledge I hate asking for money uh, but you know supporters like you help keep the show afloat so let's get into some events we got uh, Kai coming up that's later this month uh, Woodrow's going to be over there helping us break that down. We got HFES International this year in Philly from October 1 through 5, and then HFES Australia, and that's in Perth, Australia from November 26th through the 28th. So lots of events. If you guys know of any events, please jump into our uh, Slack and uh, let us know if there's an event, any events. We'll be happy to plug them and um, you know join join the community there. We got we got a lot of good discussion this week uh about some of our news stories and on that top on that note let's get into the news stories yes this is the part of the show all about human factors news this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors this could be anything from you guessed it anything it could be as long as it deals with human factors it's fair game Uh, blake what do we got up first this week i don't know it's a monday whatever (laughs) It is a Monday. All right, let's start off this Monday with a bang for sure. So the new research funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a.k.a. DARPA, has shown that electrodes implanted in the brain can improve memory. The concept may sound like science fiction, but according to a new paper in the Journal of Neural Engineering, technology like this may be the reality before too long. In a military-funded pilot study, scientists successfully tested what they call a prosthetic memory, a neural implant that can learn to recognize your brain activity when you correctly recall new information and later replicate that activity with electric signals to give your short-term memory an actual boost. So in a small test of about 15 patients at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, this prosthetic memory system helped patients improve their short-term memory by an average of about 35%. So although the study was small in sample size and each patient already had ex- an existing electrode implants to treat an unrelated condition, it does have a significant meaning in terms of its implications for the for the future of memory. Significantly more research is going to be required for something like this to become more of a commercial prosthetic uh, when we're talking about memory implants, but it could soon become a reality. And Now, Nick... I've stopped really thinking that anything that's going to come from DARPA can be related to science fiction because they seem to be able to bring this stuff to more life than any other agency out there. That's really funny you say that. I I completely agree because we've seen sort of these concepts from DARPA before where 
we've we've seen them in science fiction, and then we see DARPA working on them, and and some sort of application comes out of it. Uh, you know, it's not as uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you can speak to this too, but I don't see the DARPA research being as ubiquitous or um, pervasive as stuff that's coming out of NASA. Uh, and it, I don't I don't know if that's a fair comparison, right? But uh, just in terms of the the science fiction becoming reality aspect of it i don't like i i see more stuff from nasa that comes to that realm than than darpa but it's still like th- something like this could potentially i just feel like there's not that follow-through yeah you you might be right i mean we've never really seen a whole lot of throughput throughput like we do with nasa right because we're talking like space stations and all that kind of kind of stuff and there's always the push to move into space but i don't know man over the past what Gosh, it's been almost two years that we've done this podcast. I feel like we've had a lot of really cool, you know, researchy type projects that come out from exoskeletons to this prosthetic memory that kind of stop there, right? And I, and I don't know if that's because that's really how that agency functions. Um, and then somebody else kind of picks it up and runs with it and they get a small amount of credit later. Or if that's just a, like, they, they kind of hit a wall after we see these stories because I, I don't really know what happens at the end of it. Right, uh, I guess but, that's fair. But this is really interesting seeing as it's being conducted with, with actual people. I mean, it's not just a prototype of an electrode implant. This, is act- this was an actual small but actual test. So, I mean, that's that's something. Yeah, and, and one, one important note to make here is that these are, this this was tested on people who already had these implants in them and they were also um what what were they they were they had memory uh disorders or what were they <laughs> i'm looking for it uh i don't see it blake help me out no it looks like it's just a basic memory disorder right like some kind of dysfunction where they can't really keep things in in i think it's short term memory uh, very well, and I and that's really what they had their patients do during this study too. Was the test for this, or the kind of like we're going to replicate what what happens at this specific moment in time? Was they're playing a basic memory challenge or a memory game? So they're trying to identify several images that have been shown on a screen. You see a delay, and then the image will come back, and they'll have to recall through trials whether they had seen it before, or they had not seen it before, uh, just that kind of stuff. So typical typical memory game. Uh, but what's what's really kind of blowing my mind here about this story, besides this is electrical implants in your brain, um, was that they were a- was that scientists were able to replicate the actual electrical signals or activity that was happening in that specific part of the brain during when they were experiencing these images. That yes. for some reason really. I don't, I don't know. That almost seems unreal because we have such a hard time like conceptualizing how we can pull things out of the brain and then replicate them. And I feel like this is a this is a small, small step for that. But I feel like if you're pulling electrical signals out of it and able to push them back out, that's uh, that's one step forward. And if this is aiding memory, or at least in a small sample size, I wonder what the implications are once we get further down the road when we can, like, you know, fire neurons and stuff like that. Right, yeah. No, that's... I, I'm sure Elon Musk is paying careful attention to this from, from his uh, Neuralink uh, company. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was really impressive, too. Um I don't know. I feel really kind of uh, cautiously optimistic about this only because uh, it, it seemed like this was such a small sample size. It, it seemed like these were these were individuals with memory problems already. And like that, that's good that it's helping that demographic. But how will this um, sort of uh, generalize to other demographics? Right. How will this help students in school who are trying to learn things for a class? Um, you know, this, this is like that one step removed from being constantly connected to the internet and downloading things off the internet to your brain to where you don't really need to learn anything anymore. If that's the case, right? Cause you're just a cog in the wheel that can download skills on a whim. And it, it feels like, especially with your point of being able to replicate the, um, firing that happened in the brain of the neurons during that moment that they were learning, like it, it seems like it's just it, we're almost there, and that's like, scary and 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 cool. I I don't know, man. Like I, <laughs> I am having a hard time processing this, honestly. 
Well, I mean, think about it. This is kind of like a bastardized version of what's happening. But think about if in the student case that you're mentioning, right? Like, what if you're studying for a test? I definitely experienced this a bunch throughout college where there was there was something I just sucked at and I just couldn't get it through my brain, couldn't really get things to work. And when I got to the test, sometimes I did fine, sometimes I didn't. Well, what if in this case you could stimulate your own brain to kind of fire some of the same electrical signals of, you know, when this when you were uh, that you were kind of going through when you were studying or looking at flashcards for this specific part of a test. It could, it, it could like, you know, act as a different kind of memory aid to try and really not help you cheat, but help you get in that same frame of mind. It's kind of like going and sitting in the room that you're going to take a test in to study in to try and get that like little, little bit of extra edge on people that you're, you're already comfortable in the situation. So I, I can see how that, how it can be abstracted, but I really like, obviously I don't know. This is from Live Science. I feel like whoever wrote this is a good scientist, in my opinion, because they were very clear about this. Is, this is a small sample size, but also, too, I mean, this is the very beginning of trying to figure out what we're going to do now um, or where to go from here. So I don't, I don't know. I want to see what happens in the future with it, but I really don't know what the longevity of this, because, again, it's a DARPA project. We really sometimes don't see the outcomes of these. Yeah, Blake, you know, I'm all ready to... I'm already ready to get off the rails here because honestly, the, the the whole using this to stimulate your brain to remember something in school is almost the same argument as like, are should performance enhancing drugs be legal in sports? Right? I, I don't know. Like it's it's a it's a weird ethical line that we'll have to consider uh, going forward too with with something like this. I don't I don't know. It's it there's there's not only does this have uh, implications for for memory, but it also has ep- ethical implications for how we use that. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, I think you bring up a really cool point there, though, because think about this is how I think about that. I think you will at some point get to that place where it is kind of like a brain PED um, in terms of like this is electrically stimulating your brain. But I think we're actually going to run through a grade of that where we're going to have these kind of ethical problems, whether it's like taking different supplements that really enhance your brain over time through, you know, medical science or if it's things like putting in implants. And then where do you really draw the lines for that kind of stuff? But then let's think about what happens when we get on the other side of that when it's not just localized to a few people that kind of have these or have access to these when it's more of the norm and we start seeing stuff like hive mind existing where you're basically connected you're always interconnected with not just the internet but other people through your mind so it's it it'll change and shift kind of like how those implications and ethical considerations change so i think i think it's just going to be a long long stretch of what are we going to do about this new emerging technology and how are we going to keep up with it and keep ahead of kind of that ethical curve yeah now yeah now now we're getting into hive mind stuff this is yeah this is some serious uh serious stuff that we have to consider going forward but you know what i i want to get into other ethical implications for technology and that's in the next story so can we let's jump in all right let's go so MIT researchers have developed a computer interface that actually transcribes words that users verbalize internally but don't speak aloud. The system consists of a wearable device and an associated computer system with electrodes in a device pickup that actually pick up neuromuscular signals in the jaw and face that trigger their that are triggered by the, triggered by these internal verbalizations saying words like in your head but are undetectable to the actual human eye so the signals are fed to a machine learning system trained to correlate particular signals with particular words and the system conveys that information to users without interrupting conversations or otherwise interfere, interfering with a user's auditory experience thus this is a totally and completely silent computing system that lets the user undetectably pose and receive answers to difficult, difficult computational questions or problems, excuse me. So, yep, Nick, this, this definitely has very, very wide ethical considerations, especially if we're talking about the world of school. Now, this is a little different because if, if any listeners haven't seen the picture from this, uh, in our Slack, it's a, it looks, it's very visible on the face. You can definitely see there's some kind of, uh, external almost earpiece looking thing but nick i really want to get your opinions on this yeah so i we were talking about this a little bit before the show and one thing so i was talking with a colleague of ours and uh you know we were we were talking about the implications of this in the criminal justice system and how 
our thoughts betray us a lot of times. And could we put this on somebody who's on trial? And what are the rights around that, right? Can you can you legally do this? Can you ethically do this? Because then they could potentially be thinking about something and, and sub-vocalizing, as, as this uh, article is pointing out, and this device will then read those thoughts and transcribe them aloud. So I thought that was a huge sort of ethical implication for something like this. I, I know we keep coming back to ethics with this, but oftentimes new technology really drives the conversation about how will this change the way we interact with the world. And I can see this being a, a, a major breakthrough in criminal justice, uh, and but, but also for the right of the person on trial, is that fair? Yeah, that's that's a whole can of worms that I wouldn't even know how to tackle, really, because, okay, so in, in your scenario, who's getting to use this? Is it somebody that's like, is it the defendant or is it an attorney? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. See, that's the thing. I would imagine it would be um, the suspect, th- that you would put this on the suspect. Whoever. Okay. Well, yeah, that's one of that's intense because I mean they could be looking, they could be asking all sorts of questions to themselves, right, and formulating better, uh, depending on what access they have to what information. But if they if they're smart enough, they could basically, I don't know, convey a very convincing story that might even add up if they can get to the proper information. Um, but counter to that, let's say that you gave, in this case, the defendant and maybe an attorney or a lawyer the same thing. Imagine being a lawyer and not having to spend so much time reviewing case studies and going through different law books and just being able to recall that very, very quickly and make arguments based on the way you need it. So I could I could see both ways where this really plays out very well. I mean, not just in the, like, def- the defendant versus attorney case, but, like, think of two lawyers that are either battling over god knows what um so i don't know it could have it could go both ways uh, i don't i don't really see if if they both have it where the problem is because i feel i feel like you're gonna get caught out and there's i don't know how much information you could be able to pull together as like a def- somebody defending yourself that would help you change the events that it occurred but i don't know people are very very smart well yeah that's what i'm saying is like if you ask the right questions the person who is sitting you know on next to the judge the and and you ask them a question and they're they literally cannot control their mind in such a way that prevents them from from thinking the thoughts but their sub vocalization um jaw their jawbone is then uh betraying them for for that thing and and although they're not saying it out loud verbally, this device could capture that and say it out loud verbally. So there's no way for them to hide. Yeah, that I I don't know that this again, this is very abstract, but that gets into like the same territory as the fear of the hive mind, right? Like nothing's private anymore yeah. in any in any aspect. It's always open and available for other people to hear and know your thoughts, which sometimes you, they're just for you, if that makes any sense. Uh, so, so I don't know. I, I would have a hard time thinking that that was an ethical thing you could do. But in this case, we're talking about what if it's potentially somebody who's on trial for murder. Right. Um, and they release something extra by thinking it to themselves that they wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's But I mean, this article goes into – so MIT's come up with a couple other uh, solutions or, or um, applications of this as well, uh, one of them being special ops where – you're in a noisy environment, but you need to be silent uh, or um, potentially people with speech disabilities who can't vocalize normally, right? Like Roger Ebert, who didn't have the ability to speak anymore, but because he lost his jaw, but um, you know, could, could you do something like this uh, that would speak the words for, or like Stephen Hawking even who couldn't move, but he used uh, twitches in his cheek to communicate. So, I don't know. Like, there's there's some cool applications for this, uh, and and um, especially like if you watch the video, there's sort of this uh, this guy's walking around this this convenience store, and he's looking at prices, and he kind of sub vocalizes the price to himself of of uh, product on the shelf, and then he walks a little bit and sub vocalizes another price, and it adds them together, so that way he it's 
it's taking memory from uh, it's it's offloading memory from uh, knowledge in the world versus knowledge in the brain, right? So he, he's then taking that information and it's it's doing all the calculations for him. He doesn't have to worry about it. Uh, it's taken care of for him, all from just kind of reading uh, subconsciously. Yeah, the the one thing that I I would love to either talk to somebody who's gotten to use this or be able to use it myself because I can only ima- or I can't imagine how this gets around the the problem of creating more workload for your mind, right? Like if I they give an example about let's say you were you're having a conversation with somebody and instead of pulling out your phone and googling it, you could just do it internally and it would you would receive the answer. And I mean in the in the beginning of the blur blurb it talked about how it doesn't really interact interrupt your current user experience. Like I, I just feel like it would be a little overwhelming or something to get used to. And I wonder what that would feel like from like a cognitive aspect, you know, like trying to focus on talking to somebody and then at the same time internally asking yourself questions and then receiving feedback and throwing that back into the loop of what you were talking about and then trying to extract that into more serious context like work or the justice system. Uh, I, it just sounds like, like a really interesting uh, auditory design problem to me. Yeah. And um Sorry, I just was reminded of another thing. So this actually uh, includes a pair of bone conduction headphones, right? And so this this actually vibrates through the bones to the inner ear, so that way you can hear things uh, that don't interfere with what you're processing from the external environment, right? And so some applications of this too would be, um, I believe, one of the researchers was saying, you know, you could you. Things like uh, where, where it's super loud, like on the tarmac of an airport or on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. Um, people are already wearing these equipment to kind of protect their ears. But what if they had one of these on? They could literally communicate with other people and those signals would be sent directly to their inner ear without having to. You know, So it wouldn't be like hearing a um, hearing through headphones that are also blocking out sound, like noise canceling headphones uh, that you could actually hear them directly in your ear so that there's less communication errors man this sounds like it just is the million dollar idea of 2018 then because that's just that impacts so many industries that have like very complex work environments where the the sound is a really big problem or the military applications that we talked about so wow i just i I can't wait to see these kind of roll out i hope because i know i know it's from mit and it's definitely in a research phase and again we see or we've talked about over the past year uh, different stories that come out and we don't really see the end result but i hope this something like this keeps rolling out and yeah. then on top of this like the accessibility um aspect of it is even makes it even cooler right i agree yeah so let me ask you a question though blake this is this might be a little bit of banter and might go off into a little tangent but that's okay i'm, I'm fine with it uh wh- sure so when google glass came out there were a lot of sort of the, the there was hesitancy to wear this thing because it looked so goofy right it was a pair of glasses with this uh kind of bulky um arm that goes around your ear and and it had the projector on the you know right right side would you wear something like this knowing the benefits of it like the the benefits with google glass were a little bit nebulous right like could you you could do apps through your glasses that could do augmented reality overlays the 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 promise of the future was there, but it wasn't quite there with something like this. I feel like you'd immediately get benefits. So would, despite this thing looking goofy as hell, would you wear something like this? Oh yeah, definitely. Because Google glass was one thing for me. Cause I, I got to try a lot of early prototypes when I was interning up in mountain view for NASA at one point, and a friend of mine worked there. And I mean, it was super hard because I had glasses and they were glasses to put on glasses. And then it, like we've talked about the, the application of it, like kind of hit into a totally different demographic, but it was very awkward to wear and all that kind of stuff. And I just didn't see the utility here. I for, and this is going to sound kind of lame, but for the fact that you could potentially continue having a conversation with somebody and actually not have to bring your phone out and stop the conversation and look something up, like looping yourself back into just, you know, having very intense conversations. I mean, I would do it just for that aspect. Um, much less, uh, if I don't know if I was in some kind of work environment that made it really intense for me to have to like wear headgear like this. And this saves my hearing later down the road. I just, I think it has so many more benefits that 
outweigh any of the kind of cosmetic looking of cosmetic costs of it, right? Um, but I don't know. What do you think about it, Nick? I don't know. I, I mm, yeah, I'm kind of with you in the sense that I would wear it. I don't know if I'd wear it for the same reasons you would. I. I'm thinking about this from the perspective of like, what if there was some sort of integration with a service like Evernote or OneNote where literally every thought that you have throughout the day gets automatically uploaded to these things. So that way, if you're like, oh, I know I thought about that earlier today, um, you know, and if it time stamped it with your thought as well, I can see that being very beneficial to just search, just global search, like your, search your, your thoughts. Own thoughts, search your own global thoughts. Like I know I had this thought earlier, um, but like, I don't remember what it was. I remember it was about this thing and maybe just search some keywords. Right. And, and, and you know, your keywords better than anyone else does. So you might be able to, um, key into that easier, but I would, I would wear it for that very reason. If not, uh, you know, you could almost like, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about everything that I would use this for where I'm like, uh, I, I know I had stuff to do, but what is it? Well, I searched to do because I've trained myself to say to do this, to do that. And then that way, every thought that I ever have is transcribed in that syntax so I can go back and search it. Um, or like, you know, buy this at the grocery store, buy this at the grocery store. And then while I'm at the grocery store, literally just or or start thinking in a way that's almost better for organization like that and use the tool itself to recall that information. What did I need at the grocery store? And then it recalls everything with the grocery store tag and presents it in your ear on loop. Like there, there's a lot of things that I can see this being really beneficial for. Um, and sort of the automating the, the grunt work tasks, I think would be the, the biggest thing for me or, or being able to search my, my, um, search my thoughts that's that's kind of the most promising thing to me with this yeah i I think those are great applications i would i would love to try it for kind of like a a similar reason but to see if different things that i do during my day actually work out to help my you know mind function better if that makes any sense it it would be more of like kind of doing an analysis on what i'd done throughout the day and how that compared over time but doing things like meditation or taking nootropics or seeing how over time, how many times I have to go and search keywords or how, you know, how much more clear my thoughts are over time uh, versus like in, in stressful moments. I think it would be fun just to kind of analyze my own thoughts over a long period of time or maybe even if, if it can pull out some of the stuff from my entire lifetime, uh, seeing how how your mind has changed over over your entire life. I, that's you. And then the integration with software tools like Evernote would just make things amazing. Right. Cause you, yeah. you just write things on the fly all the time. Or, or sort of querying your thoughts for how many times you've had a certain thought. Like, I know I've thought of this a million times. Maybe that's the, may, but, but if, if someone like Amazon or, or some big retailer gets into that data, then it's really dangerous, right? Like I, I thought about buying this thing 17 times in the last month. Uh, and then Amazon starts presenting it to you. Like, you know, like there, there's the dangers with that data too, but I, I would find it more peace of mindy for me. Like if I, if I was thinking about buying this thing and it came up you know, 17 times over the last three days, like I'd be like, ah, I should probably just get this thing right As compared to like something else that came up maybe once. So I, I don't know. And being able to see like charts about how much you've thought about something. I don't know. I get really geeky about data. And so that's, that's probably just me, my inner geek going data, data, data. Yes. About me. And that's, that's even great. That's even better. Um, you know, and, and, uh, Another application too would be like potentially transcribing podcasts because that's that's something we do. We could we could do that. Yeah, I mean we could just start doing that right now. Yeah, we could. <laughs> uh, seriously though, I hope that this becomes either through MIT or through a different outlet becomes like a commercial product because I think it has a lot of utility from the data aspect to the simple being able just to query things on the go without having to interrupt like the flow of whatever you're doing. I, I just think it's it's one more step to putting everything in your mind but still being able to offload that information. Yeah. Now this isn't really in our wheelhouse. We talk about more about the human factors side of things and, and what the implication is for the user but I'm curious what, what kind of price point would you pay for this type of thing 
that's that's tough. I uh, I don't know. Two thousand. Yeah, probably. That's that's probably where it'd be put at, right? Like it wouldn't it wouldn't come out for the low. Um, I'd I'd have to wait till Gen two if it was two Gs to start with. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I. It depends on how much uh, functionality. If it comes out with the functionality that I described, where anything you say is automatically uploaded to one load and I can search it, then I'm in from Gen one. I'm in. You've sold me uh, for two for two Gs, but. I don't know. It's just fun to speculate a little bit, I think. But um, all right. Do you have anything else on this one, or should we move on? Man, let's move on. Wow. I can't believe this. We're 40 minutes in, and we've only covered two news stories. All right. So thank you to all of our friends over at Engadget, Live Science, and MIT, uh, as well as... Uh, no, that's it. For all of our news stories this week, if you guys want to follow along, you can follow us all over sh- social media or join our Slack for links to the original articles. Forgive me, guys. It's, it's my... I'm on a vacation staycation if you will it's my week off so i if i'm a little lazy that's that's why (laughs) like what have we got up next all right so most ai assistants can't really hold a conversation yeah i know siri and i are always fighting but they they're lacking the thing that humans have so the intuition of when to interrupt and when to restart chat when there's an awkward pause microsoft wants to fix that it's just upgraded one of its chatbots, AIs, with a full duplex conversation that lets you start speaking when it's listening to what you're saying. As it can as it can predict what you're likely to say next, it knows when to interrupt you with the important information or say something more when both sides go suddenly quiet. The initial plan is to spread this technology to Microsoft's other chatbots. The uh, goal of holding a two-way discussion that feels much more like you're having a conversation with a real person maybe will help people use their chatbots more often. So, Nick, I have a related but not directly related question for you. When it comes to AI assistants, how often have you used a Microsoft AI assistant? Oh, rarely. Yeah, me too. And that's I think I used it for the I used Cortana for the very first time the other day. So I'm actually really excited to try this because this is something something that I w- I would like to have more of. Um, have it being able to uh, an AI that can take more abstract thoughts or, or abstractions for what I say, but also hold a real conversation. There's some reason that I want to talk to my AI assistant. I don't really know why. I I think it's I mean part of it's like just this natural human desire to communicate with something else, right? And and even though it's not a human, it kind of could potentially fit the bill if it is human enough like, right? If it passed the Turing test uh for you know, the, one of the one of the thresholds on the Turing test, right? If it did that, then it could potentially give you some of that satisfaction that you're looking for. Um like let's say let's say you just want to have a conversation about human factors with somebody, but there's not a whole lot of human factors people in your life. Like let's say you're isolated. Like fortunately, you and I don't have this problem. We talk to each other on a weekly basis. But let's say there's somebody who's isolated in their job where that maybe maybe they've got into UX and and there's a few other UX people around them. Um, but for the most part, it's like they're the UX guy and then, or girl and, and, and there's designers around them and they do the visual aspect of it, but they do the user side of things. And, but they just want to talk about it with somebody. If you had more conversational AI where they could interrupt you and talk about your day and all this other stuff, everything else that goes with it, I think that would be cool. But we're talking about the ability to interrupt somebody. And I think that's a really crucial uh, sort of aspect of human communication, right? You and I, Blake, as we talk on this show, we have sort of this cadence where one of us will give our side of things and the other person will give the other side of things. And we have this established structure as we talk about these news stories. And it's apparent to our listeners that when they're listening to the podcast, we we have a format for how we tackle this thing. Uh, but to somebody listening for the first time, maybe they don't know that and they think we're ranting or rambling or something like I'm doing now. But the important thing is uh, we have this established communication. And, you know, in, in everyday life, when you're just talking about something else, uh, there's sort of these nonverbal cues as well as verbal cues that let one party know that you're done versus the other party, uh, you know, permission to speak. And, and so 
being able to translate that into an AI is is really great because I don't know how many conversations you've had with AIs where you have to give them an entire thing and then they ask for clarification and you already know what the clarification is and you just want to say it and they don't implement it, right? So, for example, when I when I set an alarm, it's Alexa set an alarm for blah, 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 at blah, 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 blah. And she'll do it, but then she'll ask for clarification as to what is the alarm for, right? But if I go and say that, set an alarm for blah, 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 at blah, 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 she, she still asks the follow-up question because she didn't understand the... Uh, the four of that. But if she could jump in and say, what's the alarm for before I even say the time, you know, I think that'd be a little bit better conversationally. Yeah. I mean, that makes a whole, whole lot of sense. Right. And I, I get the same kind of weird cadence thing when I use uh, Siri too, because often if I ask her to do something like set a timer or, you know, do any amount of other things, sometimes she'll, She'll like have a, a question, like a clarifying answering question, but or a follow up question. But because of you have to, I have to wait until she's done speaking before it'll actually start recording my voice appropriately. Sometimes I miss the key, or I'm like trying to talk to her like right as if it was me and you. I like I start as soon as her sentence ends, or I feel that it's going to end, uh, and I start talking and just because of the lag in the recording software or however it's set up, it'll, it'll kind of miss my replies and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean this lack of conversation, conversationality, not sure that's a word, um, but it'll, it'll ultimately help. I think people get more comfortable with talking to different AIs. Cause I think the, 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 sorry, the situation you brought up makes, makes a whole lot of sense, right? Like if, what if somebody doesn't know about human factors, doesn't know about, you know, UX and wants to learn about it. But also, too, another kind of fun thing there is, I mean, there's the internet and the wonders of Google that allow you to almost find answers to any question you have. But sometimes there's something much more engaging and I feel like I learn a lot more when I talk to somebody about yes. something I don't know a whole lot about. Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So I mean, it, it, I'm not saying that if I go on my, if I later download the new update for this Microsoft AI assistant that I'll be able to talk to them about quantum physics and really have an understanding of it. But if it's like a building block, right? Like this could, this is the way of kind of moving things forward. Um, that I don't know. It's sometimes I don't want to read. I'd rather just have a conversation, even if it is with a, uh, an AI robot. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. All right. We got one more story left. Let's get into it. Cause we're bumping up against time. I can't believe it. It's been a, it's been a Monday night folks. Goodness. All right. So from Am... I'm going to butcher this one. From Ambos to Skylanders. Amiibos. E- Say it one more time. Amiibos. Amiibos. From Amiibos to Skylanders, game companies have led the led the toys, toys to life charge to translate real-world objects into digital into digital worlds. But those have only have only translated to proprietary products. Microsoft researchers have developed a prototype smart playmat called Project Zanzibar that can scan in everyday items, even those that don't have a shed of computer tech. Zanzibar is a sensing platform that combines cap... Sorry, that combines cap... Capacitive. (laughs) Capacitive. (laughs) Monday night, folks long money for Blake too. All right, the combines <laughs> capacitive sensing to track finger movements with near field communication, NFC, to detect objects. It's also flexible both literally and systematically. So you just hook it up to any tablet or screen and unroll the mat and you're all ready to go. It can sense objects simply by placing an NFC sticker on their on the bottom of the object which tracks them spatially and even vertically, identifying distinct items stacked on top of each other. So there's obvious benefits for play and learning, but there's no reason it couldn't also be used at work for modeling real-world objects in digital spaces for architects, civic planners, or even home designers. So while Zanzibar is a long way from becoming a consumer product, the team behind it will present their findings at the AMC Kai Conference in Montreal later this month, So though the paper will be downloadable right now. So while I go figure out how to say capacitive, uh, Nick, tell us about what you think. So this is really cool. I don't know if you've ever used any of these toys to life or uh, anything like 
that the technology. So basically, what you got is sort of you you put the um, you put the toy on this predetermined. Uh, I'm talking about how it is now. So you put you put like a like a Disney Infinity toy on this this dock, and then you can play that character in the virtual world. But what this is doing is it's it's basically just a sensing pad that allows uh, any sort of object to be placed in a digital world, which is really cool. So not only can you do like regular objects like blocks or circles or whatever, you can actually do cameras as well. So this could be really great for, for creating virtual worlds. Um, especially if you like have these building blocks in the physical environment, you can essentially just put them on this thing and then, um, move a camera around uh on this pad and um even even use that for sort of potentially directing like setup or blocking for for movies or uh some of these vr things like there's i'm watching the video and they have like this this situation where you have like two pirates and a and a cannonball and it actually tracks all the action you could also do things like uh like I don't know if you ever watched some of those like kid shows where they have like the the cards that activate monsters in a hologram form in front of them. You could almost do that kind of thing. There's there's a lot of cool applications for this, but I'm most excited for obviously me being a VR guy, uh, the the building of the virtual worlds because you could literally take physical components, plop it in there, and and. Uh, be able to block these virtual worlds using a physical environment that you have a much better spatial awareness of from the outside. Which just blows my mind away, right? Because now you're just taking physical objects and then sticking them into a potential virtual world with really not a whole lot of having to do any kind of programming or coding or learning how to use frameworks. I mean, you're literally using a mat and it's translating those objects into that virtual world for you. And I mean, I could see people even building virtual worlds um, kind of as a starting place using just this mat to kind of like get things spatially oriented in the way they want. Now, when, when we're talking about this, Nick, just for listeners, how big is this mat? So it looks to be probably about um, a foot tall, maybe a foot and a half wide. This is for... Uh, for Americans, I guess. Uh, but, uh, let's see, what is a foot? One foot to... What is it? What would it, would it be, like, meters, I guess? <laughs> so, like, a third of a meter tall and probably, like, half a meter wide for our international okay, folks. So- I'm, tr- I'm trying to be inclusive. <laughs> that makes sense, for sure. But And that's that's a pretty good amount of space that you could fit a lot of different kind of objects and build around from there. So I, I don't even... No, man. I mean, that would be just I want to see like the interplay between how this would feel having something in the real world and being able to interact with it and then see it populate in a virtual reality headset. Yeah. So, well, at least in the virtual world aspect of things, right? Like I I think it's really cool. I, I've played with these toys to life things before uh most my my experience is mostly rooted in disney infinity obviously because i'm a a star wars guy and they had a whole bunch of star wars figures that i've collected and are sitting on a shelf somewhere but um being able to take this figure plop it on this thing and see it in the virtual environment is so cool but this seems like there's so much more control over what is going on and um you know the 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 sky's the limit with this thing here uh because there's (laughs) You literally, it, it is an X, Y uh, grid that you literally put things on and it will translate that to the virtual environment. There's no like dock, there's no place to dock your, your figures or anything. It's literally just, you put them on this mat and it, it translates it. So that's really exciting for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I can see from like a, I can definitely see why it's going to be at Kai this year, but like from an ergonomics perspective, right? Like being able to interact with something virtually. I mean, what if you could even manipulate the object that you had? Like, let's say you had some kind of physical prototype that you had uploaded to your virtual reality headset and you were actually able to manipulate it through this pad and then transfer that to something you could print later or ship off to somebody as like enhancements to a prototype. I mean, I feel like this has such implications outside of even just entertainment, but really into like a workplace, especially for physical products. Right. Yeah. I, I, and you bring up a good point with prototyping and and manipulating things in the virtual environment. That's, I don't know if you've ever used any 
um, software that allows you to create 3D environments. But sometimes, and maybe it's just my skill level, maybe it's user error, I don't know. But sometimes it's difficult to manipulate these objects in 3D environments to do exactly what you want, right? Where you're like, ah, if I could just reach out and touch that, it'd be so much better. Um, like I, I know how to, I know how to manipulate this and I know what, what I would do. I just can't get the computer to do it because, you know, you're working on a 2d screen and you're trying to manipulate a 3d environment. Um, yeah. Being able to manipulate using that pad would be a lot easier. Oh, it'd be amazing. I mean, you can think about abstracting that idea to different types of software, even, uh, that would allow you to manipulate things in a way that makes more localized sense to you without you having to try and figure out and understand how a program um, works or is interpreting what you're giving it, right? Right, yeah. Um, all right, so let's see. We got we got about five minutes. Why don't we get into one of these Reddit questions? But before I do that, let me let me play the intro because it's it's important. It came from... It came from... It came from Reddit. So, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about something Reddit here. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any subreddit's fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion amongst the community. It's fair game. Blake, we got time for one. Like I said, which one do you want to do today? Uh, all right, Nick. My vote's for number two. All right. Two is a long one, but I think it's a good one. Let's go ahead and do number two. So this one is uh, submitted to the user experience subreddit from ML Notley. Uh, And this is titled, Being Very Underutilized at My Current Job as a UX Researcher. Need advice with either advocating for greater workload or switching companies. Um ML Nutley goes on to write, Hello, user experience. I need your advice. For the past two years, I've been working as a UX researcher at a medium-sized company at the South Bay that does some smart home and telecom technology with my main area of work running beta tests. However, as time goes on, uh, I believe that I'm being underutilized. Despite being a UX researcher, I am frequently excluded from the design process for many of our apps and products. Why? Why? I end up with very little... Uh, to do during the day. I see my coworkers working on wireframes, etc., and I'm very worried that they see me doing little and get a negative impression of me. I have raised this to my boss multiple times. While he's understanding, he's said that I need to prove myself and show the company's engineers that I'm someone that can be trusted with design and research. Problem is, it's like the conundrum of, of the entry-level job that requires five years of experience. I can't prove myself until I've actually had a chance to do so. I've talked to my coworkers multiple times and offered my assistance. They just smile, say sure, and then they never talk to me about it again. Some seem to be quite cold beyond the normal small talk. Uh, I'm starting to get fed up. I'd rather leave and find a new company to work for that can give me more things to do. The problem is I don't have anything truly meaningful to put into a research portfolio. No portfolio, no proof that I can do what I say I can do. At the same time, I'd rather not go through a company change at some point. I just don't understand why I'm being excluded. That's a lot to say. Uh, they're they're not using this guy or girl uh, as much as this person would like to be. Uh, so, Blake, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. this. This sounds like there's a lot going on. We should break it down. Yeah, this one's really, really heavy. Um, so I'm just going to take it piece by piece the way I would kind of tackle it. Um, so the biggest problem, right, is they're just not, they feel like they're not being utilized. They're seeing other people doing the work that they potentially could have inputs on. Again, this person has labeled themselves self as specifically a user experience researcher. So maybe that only includes doing kind of like the backside research that you're providing the inputs to the engineers or to UX designers, who, however it works at this specific company. Um, and it, it's totally tough that they're having a hard time like interacting with those coworkers. But uh, being excluded from the design process doesn't mean that you can't figure out ways to help. Because if you are a user experience researcher, you've been at a company for a while, and you're well versed in how to, you know, take the products that they already have and try and reach out to users or build tests that can help you assess where that product's at in this current its current life cycle or its current implementation. I mean, you can gather that kind of information, distill it yourself, and like your boss says, prove it to the team that you have inputs to give. Uh, the the one thing that I don't know based off of this post, right, is that they mentioned that they've talked to their boss multiple times. Often, it's not the boss that's going to help you here. Um, because even if they do go say something to the team, 
now you, you're probably going to get that cold shoulder feeling from at least some of those teammates who are being now told from up on high that you have to work with this person. Um, now, I, I've experienced it in different situations where that is helpful to kind of get your foot in the door if you've tried everything you can to, you know, prove yourself or try and work with different engineers or different people in the company and they just are not very receptive. Sometimes that's the case, but really it sounds like you need to show them what you can do based off of the resources that you have. If you feel like you're being unutilized during the day, well, don't let yourself sit there and think about the fact that you're being unutilized. Think about the skills that you have and what even small things could you start doing? Could you start suggesting metrics to bake into a web product? That's what it is. Could you, you know, take older prototypes or the current implementation of the product and try and talk to people about it, talk to different members of the uh, outside across the company to see, see where they kind of stand at the specifics of that product itself. And, and so I don't know, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with your boss. You might just need to prove yourself. I don't know how long you've been there, um, but it, it just it really sounds like you've got to take the skills you have, run with it, and try and get something out of it. Um, as far as like trying to find another job and you're not, you don't have any proof, I feel like there are definitely ways around that. Uh, depending on if you went to school for U- UX or whatever your degree or background is in, you can always kind of spin research topics maybe that you had... Uh, done in school into some portfolio piece really again like Nick and I have talked about on this podcast before illustrating the process and the story behind it Um, another way to get involved is to find different organizations that specialize in user experience um, such as like nonprofits like the user experience professionals association or UXPA Um, oftentimes they need board directors or people to volunteer and help out at events and that can help you like open the door to find small one-off jobs that you could potentially turn into a portfolio piece. Um, One other place that if you're posting on Reddit, you should use Reddit to try and find ways to help people if you can. Uh, I've actually helped somebody design or gave preliminary designs to somebody for free on Reddit. And I turned that into one of my own portfolio pieces. So there's a lot of avenues to build your portfolio up. Don't let it uh, kind of, don't let it feel like you're, you're getting hurt by having this job and getting this experience and nothing to show for it. You just have to go find stuff that you can illustrate what you know through if you're, if you're really to looking to get to another job. Yeah. So I think you really hit a lot of the points, Blake, that I would, I would too. Um, I, I know it, it sucks. It sucks when you like feel like you're not being utilized and that your skill set is not being, um, or that, that your skill set is not being met. So, I know it's easier said than done, but try to stretch yourself and, and there's advice out there. I don't, I'm not, I can't credit to any one person because it's, it's advice out there. But when you feel like your job is being threatened or when you are unhappy with your job, double down on your work responsibilities and really put like twice the amount of effort into that job and see what you get out of it. And if you still get nothing out of it, then that's when you go look, right? You don't just you don't just call it quits at your low and, and say you're done, get out of there. You want to make sure you are considering all aspects of it, that you give it a good, honest try before you left. And, uh, you know, if they still don't pull you into things, then maybe the company's not right for you. Maybe, uh, maybe you do look elsewhere. But like Blake was saying, I've offered this advice before on the show, there's always a way to spin your portfolio. There's always a way to spin the stuff that you've done to make it look desirable towards potential employers. Now, whether or not you've just been involved with a little bit of user research or whatnot, I'm positive you can find some nuggets of information to bring to your portfolio or bring to your resume that will then uh, th- that you can spin to say, "Look, I've I actually do know what I'm talking about," and um, you know, there's there's ways around that. So. Uh, aside from that, I don't really have a whole lot else to add to what Blake was talking about. It sucks that that's the position that you're in, but um, you know, give it your best. And and if it's if nothing changes still, then I think I think uh, you should find your way on the way out and and find another job that you're gonna be happy with because it's out there. I promise it is. I promise it's out there. You just gotta you just gotta look for it. Maybe it's the one you're at now. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Blake, it's been a Monday. 
So uh, I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye. That's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Did you like them? Did you hate them? Let us know. If you guys have any suggestions for topics or news stories you want us to follow, you can head on over to our Slack. Join the discussion in there. We have people posting all the time different news stories that we sometimes use, sometimes we don't. It's okay. Sometimes we leave it exclusive for you guys. I don't know. You can also follow us all over social media, too. Head on over to our Human Factors cast, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, H Factors Podcast. Be sure to check out our SoundCloud and leave us a comment over there if you like what you hear. You can send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. We read every single one. We don't always read every single one on the show because sometimes they're hurtful and offensive. Just kidding. They're always good, but don't do it. Just go, go, email, email us. And if you want to do things the old-fashioned way, you can do that, too, at 901-646-1432. You can leave us a voicemail there. That's 901-646-1HFC. It's a Monday night. I'm happy. We're done. It's good. We're going to talk about things tomorrow, too. It's all good. If you like what we're doing and want to support us on our Patreon, we urge you to consider maybe making a pledge. It's okay if you don't, but again, every little bit goes towards the show. It's at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. Like I said, tomorrow you will receive the first episode of Human Factors Cast Infinite for free. That is our gift to you. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. Mr. Blake Arnstorff, thank you for hanging out with me on a Monday night. And getting through this together, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about subvocalization? Oh, man. If you guys would like to give me hell about how hard it was to say capacitive, you can always find <laughs> me at Don't Panic on UX. Don't Panic UX on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. What is going on? It's a Monday. This is ridiculous. All right. That's for me. I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Just let me know you're a listener. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. It depends. It depends. But if Blake learns how to talk. I feel like Garfield. Mondays, am I right? Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations. And all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.